Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Listen Saturday evenings. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm in Psalm 33, verse 22. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. That's where our hope is. And some of the news coming out today is with young kids. And they're being told there is no hope. And they're blaming it on all kinds of things. We're going to talk to David Wheaton about that. David, of course, is the uh, uh, radio host and author you can go to the christianworldview.org to go to his website and learn more about David and hear his podcasts, and you can learn about his writing and his books. But uh, we're going to talk today about the indoctrination of the youth. So it's going to be an interesting topic. I'm going to take 60 seconds and bring David on. He is waiting in the wings. Hi, I'm Charles Morris with Haven on the Weekend. 1,500 pastors leave their assignments every month in the U.S., because of conflict, burnout, or moral failure. October, Pastors Appreciation Month. And the Bible's very clear that we need to esteem them, respect them, love them. So make sure you take an opportunity to tell your pastors how much you appreciate them, and that will be priceless. Worshiping Christ Together. Faith Radio. My friend and regular guest David Wheaton is on our studio line. David, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's good to be with you this afternoon, Bill. So, so nice to hear your voice as well. So there's an interesting trend nowadays when we watch the news. It seems like there's an increasing uh, indoctrination of the young when I think of things like climate change in particular and also things like, you know, um, libraries inviting drag queens to come read stories. And the list goes on. Yeah, there is. I, I think I really started to notice this. This is really nothing new, indoctrinating children. And in, in, in a way, Christians do it as well. But we'll get into that a little bit later. But but I just started to notice, and you probably did as well, after the, the shooting, the mass killing at the Parkland High School in Florida. You remember some of the students led by, uh, I think, a 17-year-old named David Hogg, mm-hmm. all of a sudden became the face Right. For the gun control um, movement in this country. And they were, you know, going before Congress and going all over the country and doing rallies and so forth. And all of a sudden, you know, we're to listen to 16 and 17 year olds. I mean, it's a horrific thing that happened to them. 
but all of a sudden they were the face of the the gun control movement it was beyond that it wasn't just you know here's an incident how can we stop this kind of incident from happening elsewhere it was it was the full on you know repeal the second amendment take guns away the whole thing uh that that the left desires to do and so i i remember seeing that but then they're just stacked one after the other you know just even recently here in the in minnesota where we both live uh, the one of the, the counties that borders the Twin Cities metro area, East Carver, uh, there were some racial incidents at the school, a couple of them. And in response to that, instead of, you know, you know, uh, kind of punishing the perpetrators, the couple students who did it, uh, the school district just started to hire a, uh, an, a Muslim equity director. Uh, who has written against, you know, Christian privilege and white privilege and all these these typical social justice leftist terms to sort of influence the whole school district. Uh, in other words, they, they were already hiring before the incident, but they found the incident. It, it was a solution looking for a problem, basically. And so now the whole school district has to be under this this equity program there where it's against, you know, Christian privilege, so to speak. Uh, you mentioned the the public libraries inviting uh, men dressed up uh, as women to come in and read stories to children. Uh, Mattel, the, the doll maker, just created its, its first transgender doll. Uh, but I think there's probably there's one issue that I think even above all those and those examples has been the issue of climate change. That issue more than any other has been just just fed to children and put them in scare and panic mode. And recently, uh, school children were allowed to skip school to take part in climate change protests around the country and around the world. And I think you have a soundbite, actually, that then you'll give listeners a good idea of what some of the kids were saying that day during the, the climate protests. Let's keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. Uh, we have been polluting the earth for years, and uh, we might actually die in a few years. Our world is already in flames. It's getting hotter. We can't breathe. We are here because our parents trashed the planet, and it's up to our generation to save it. Unlike so many people my age, I feel really visceral anxiety about climate change. Call us Generation Z, the last letter of the alphabet, because we are going to be the last generation to survive. My conscience couldn't handle the idea of bringing someone into a dying world. I'm angry because this planet is dying and the president of the biggest country in the world refuses to acknowledge that. And I'm sick of the people that they put on us. I am here for the people who are suffering and dying because of our country's decision. Wow. I mean, keep in mind, these are children mm -hmm. lecturing adults for all the, what they perceive as inaction and so forth. But it just makes the point. I mean, it begs the question, well, where are they getting their information that the world is coming to an end? Well, they're just getting it from their teachers. They're getting it from the mainstream media. They're getting it from, you know, so-called scientists. They never get any other view of their side. I mean, I've interviewed, uh, you know, someone like Cal Biasner, you probably had on your, on your show who said that, you know, man caused global warming is infant infinitesimal. Mm -hmm. And the world is not coming to an end. And the fact that a country like the United States produces so much energy the fact that we're so affluent because of our market system actually allows us to live in a cleaner environment where poorer countries don't have that opportunity. Uh, and of course, the U.S. isn't the worst polluter in the world. China and, and India are. So 
In other words, it, it's just we've reached a point, Bill, that I think is troubling where you have these young kids speaking with such surety about a situation where they've been fed a lie and these doomsday predictions that don't come true, but they're going with it. And the adults that are behind them are, are really using them and indoctrinating them for a, for a political, useful cause. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always been the strategy, isn't it, David, to try to get people to see it their way as young as possible? And then you really can't criticize children. Um, So they become sort of their their own force field. Can't tamper with kids. That's exactly right. And as as we mentioned earlier, this is nothing new, indoctrinating children. I mean, this, the the great... uh, tyrant communist leader of the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, Vladimir Lenin said, give me just one generation of youth and I will transform the whole world. Or he said, give me four years to teach the children and the seed I have sown will never be uprooted. Um, You know, the the term indoctrination has sort of a negative connotation to it. But if you just break the word down, it's like put doctrine in, indoctrination. And you know, there, there's, there's, if you take away the negative con- connotation of the word, you know, the Bible tells Christians to, it doesn't use the word indoctrinate, but tells them to influence their children, to impact them, to bring them up in Ephesians 6, 4, to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You know, those who don't, aren't Christians would call that indoctrination, just as we call the worldview that we heard in that soundbite or the other issues going on indoctrination as well. Um, but there really is no comparison, though, from the way, in the negative sense of the word indoctrination, the way that Christians indoctrinate their kids. I mean, you may see some children being used in the abortion debate, in the anti-abortion debate, you know, kids on billboards and that kind of thing, commercials. But that's really about it. But if you think for those with humanistic causes, I mean, humanistic, I'm, I'm saying man-based, man's worldview, not, not, not based on the Bible. I mean, there's just all kinds of causes that children are being used for. We mentioned some of them from social justice to gun control to climate change and, and lots of other situations. And you're exactly right. Its effects are seen as innocent. Uh, they're seen as not jaded. You know, in other words, they haven't lived long enough to be jaded about the world. They're, they're not bought, you know, like politicians can be bought by special interests. And they're sort of untouchable from criticism Mm -hmm. because after all it's just a child or or they're seen as brave and courageous because they're they're speaking truth to power or they're they're quote beyond their years for taking up this this really needed cause and only a bully would push back against the you know things we heard in that soundbite you know these kids spouting off about things that they really know nothing about All, all they're doing is regurgitating what they've been told so it is an effective tool and i think it's not new but i just think now and you could ask the question, why? Well, it could be why what Lenin said about, you know, you capture the youth and then you control the future. Uh, it, it could be because so much more of our society is humanistic. And so it's just filtering down the children. It could, because, it could be because the humanistic side doesn't have any better arguments than have to use children. It's hard to know why, but it is taking place, I think, in a greater prevalence now. Mm-hmm. David, I know this is uh, an issue, and it's an emotional issue for many, and there's a, a lot of listeners, I believe, that listen to this program that are already feeling um, a little bit angered up by this discussion that we're having. Um, so I think there's you know, attitudes and feelings all over the spectrum about 
uh, climate change and what needs to be done and uh, what kind of contributions we've made to it and how we need to take action. So this is a very emotional issue, and I just want to be real sensitive to you know all the listeners that might be feeling agitated right now. You're certainly welcome to, to send me a text if you want to jump into the conversation, 877-933-2484. Um, but, you know, being lectured um, by kids is sometimes pretty tough to handle, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I think you have another soundbite um, you know, from the, the, the really the face of that climate change movement from the children, which is Greta Thunberg. And I think it's probably interesting to learn, hear from her exactly how this indoctrination took place in her life. Mm-hmm. And you have a soundbite about how she became a climate activist, I believe. If you want to play a few uh, 30 seconds of that, I think it, it helps to understand how she she was the first one who talked by the way she just recently spoke to the un climate change panel and so forth she was the first one that was in that first soundbite you played but she's the face of it i mean she's all over the world now speaking and so forth but it's interesting to her hear in her own words how she developed the worldview she has yeah let's take a break and then when we come back from break we will hear what greta says david wheaton's my guest we'll be right back David Wheaton is my guest, host of The Christian Worldview. Go to thechristianworldview.org. We're talking about the indoctrination of young hearts and minds. Um, And Greta Thunberg was this 16-year-old Swedish kid who kind of talked about how she came to this understanding. I think we've got a clip. Let's hear it. I first became aware of the climate crisis maybe when I was eight years old. And my teachers in school told me about this and... uh, and they showed us films and pictures of starving polar bears and plastic in the ocean. And I, I was really affected of that. I became very sad. I thought it was very strange. There was an existential crisis that would threaten our civilization. And yet that wasn't a f- our first priority. I think the turning point in my life where I decided that I was going to do something about the climate crisis was maybe uh, when I was uh, 11. I became ill. I fell into a depression and I, I thought to myself that I can do so much good with my life instead and decided to, to do something with my life to try to make a difference. There you go. Well, that explains it. You know, back when she was eight years old, yeah. teachers told her they, they transmitted their worldview to her. And she's now that she's 16 or 17, she's, she's running with it. And, and the problem is, you know, what she was told is really, really hasn't happened. You know, all the, the dire predictions, I'm sure she was shown Al Gore's inconvenient truth and dire predictions of what's going to happen in the world and Miami will be flooded and everything else. It's not happening. Mm-hmm. And the fact, the fact is that Christian before ship of the earth, ship of the earth, and not using environmentalism, gain massive government control. That's why climate change is so effective, such an effective issue, is because it's a global issue, affects everyone in the world, and government gets control and tells you, you're ruining the planet. They can say, well, we must put regulation out. We must control the way you live, and therefore they can consolidate power. That's ultimately the goal of why it's used. Now, that being said, Christians should be for a safe, 
and good water and clean water. No Christian should be against that. Christians should be for, uh, you know, taking care of the earth God gave us. But it's to what degree? It's what to what degree do we do that? And so she learned all these things when she was young from a very humanistic leftist perspective. And so it's really not surprising the indoctrination she received early on now that she's become really the face of the movement worldwide now. Mm-hmm. One of our listeners, Terry, said, is, is indoctrination just the politically correct term for brainwashing? <laughs> well, I guess you could say, again, indoctrination has a, a negative connotation. If you, just, if you just take away the negative connotation and say, let's just say you use the word influence, um, you know, Christians indoctrinate or influence their kids as well. We want our kids to understand that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth and that he is the, he's the sustainer of life, uh, that man isn't going to be the one that destroys the earth someday. It's going to be actually God who destroys the earth by fire someday. Mm-hmm. Um, so things are going according to God's timetable, not man's. And that, you know, we, we need to have the influence of the worldview that's transmitted to our children come from not man-based, you know, leftist, and I don't mean just politically, theologically leftist worldviews, uh, but those that come really from a biblical worldview. Because ultimately, that, that's the question here. I mean, you, you could ask the question, Bill, well, what's the difference between how those with a, a humanistic worldview uh, use and indoctrinate children for their own ends versus how of indoctrinating your The answer to that question is, you have to you have to ask the question. Well, which side has the truth on their side? True. Um, if you're indoctrinating or influencing children, let's not take that. Let's take that loaded term out of there. Influencing children uh, according to things that aren't true or, or or have falsehoods or are don't come true. You are you are doing them in the world harm. I mean, I feel sorry for Greta Thunberg that she thinks the way she does. I mean, she she has got this incredibly anxious, panicked worldview that everything is going to come to an end because of the climate. And it's just not happening. And so just think how that affects her on a daily basis. I mean, she she doesn't even take an airplane. She she took a solar uh, sailboat across the ocean. And it just, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of mind boggling and, and sad and tragic, impacted by this. And all those children that you heard in that soundbite that you played first on. But on the other side, if you are indoctrinating, so to speak, or influencing kids according to the truth, you're not you're not just doing the right thing. You're really obeying God. I mean, if you look at Deuteronomy six, which is this great passage in the Old Testament where Moses has just heard from God, and and Moses and God tells Moses, he says these words which I am commanding you today, they'll sh- they shall be on your heart. So it starts with you. And the next verse, verse seven, Deuteronomy six says, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, indoctrinate, so to speak, your children with the truth of God's word. So that that's that's the positive connotation that we're actually to do that as Christians. We're not to sort of just open up all the different viewpoints to our children and say, you know, whatever you pick and whatever you think is right is the is that's up to you. No, we can open up and show them all the different worldviews, but we're to go back and show them why the biblical or Christian worldview is the right way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, David, for kids, this is a, an additional pressure, which certainly didn't exist when we were kids, where if you are not uh, joining in to the chorus 
on climate change, you are going to be a little bit cut out of the uh, the social scene in school. There's that chance anyway. I think we just lost you. Yep, I guess we did. But it's certainly something that I think kids feel a little bit of pressure on. They want to be accepted. They want to be part of the, the, the cool group. And if the cool group is saying and doing one thing, they're going to want to, you know, hear, understand, and maybe even repeat um, a lot of the things they hear. So it does it does get to be a challenge. Uh, David, I don't know if you heard any of that, but... Uh, I did. Unfortunately, your connection's gone really bad. And I know you're calling from your um, villa in Tuscany, so I appreciate you um, making the show, but uh, we're, we're, we're losing you. So I think I'm going to have to let you go. But okay. It, Oh, wait, there you're back. Awesome. I'm back. Oh, good, good. Hearing every word you're saying, you sound like you're crystal clear. Okay, yeah, we've lost you, David. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was uh, really, really nice of you to hang in there, but we we did lose you, and I know you're not at your villa in Tuscany, but I wish you were, because I'd like to join you there someday. But uh, the whole the whole idea, and we've had some nice uh, callers and some nice listeners join in, and, you know, they... One caller would like to know, how do you defend the idea that as Christians, we are not indoctrinated our kids? Because people who are not Christians could say the same thing about Christ-centered families. Um, Christians are training their kids in the truth. And I think that the point that David made is so wise, what's on the side of raising kids in a biblical, biblical, biblically-centered household is truth. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a great point. Yeah, and and... Hopefully that truth is the one uniting factor for all of us Um, and what keeps us from the difference between indoctrination and education, I think, is the ability to question and define what the truth is. So it's not as though children in Christian homes aren't being taught the the way of Christ um, versus people from a more left worldview or a more environmentalist worldview, they're teaching their kids what they believe. Mm -hmm. Um, But the question is, are we allowed to figure out what the truth is together? And would you be willing to change your view in line with the truth? Can we all come together and say, yes, we want to know what the truth is, and we're going to conform our lives to that truth as soon as we find out what it is, because that's what we as Christians seek to do. It's not that we always have all the answers, but it's that we seek to go to the God who has those answers, and then we can form our lives in alignment with that truth. But don't you think, uh, Rebecca, there is social pressure on kids? And if oh, definitely. if the cool thing to do is say that the world's going to end in 12 years, you know, the typical kid is going to go, yeah, I guess it is going to end in 12 years. Because we want to be popular. Because we want to be, we popular. be liked and we want right. to be popular. And, and that's why I think the important thing is to teach our children to figure out what is truth and to yes. always ask, what is yes. truth? Yes. So a big thanks to David Wheaton, uh, my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org. You can learn more about David, of course. He's a weekly guest. So we'll take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have an opportunity to speak with uh, Professor Dr. Kent Dunnington. He's probably written the very best book on addiction. It's called Addiction and Virtue, and it's one of my favorite books. It's one of my go-to books, and we're going to talk about uh, something out of the recovery um, community that could be very useful to all of us. We'll take a short break and be back with Kent in just a couple minutes.
Liberty on Facebook. I am a really big fan of my next guest, Dr. Kent Dunnington, Associate Professor of uh, Philosophy at Biola. He's written a book, an amazing book, called Addiction and Virtue, uh, which I love. And he's also written a book called Humility, Pride, and Christian Virtue Theory, which I I read, but I I was too dumb to understand. So um, he's back. Kent, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah, it's great. Great to hear your voice again. And I... Really enjoyed your article um, that you had uh, put out on small groups, and I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit how you sort of discovered a pretty unique small group when you were doing research for addiction and virtue. Sure. Got to to the whole question of addiction by a mentor of mine who was a recovering alcoholic, and um, been talking to him about my own experience as a Christian in the church. At that time, I had fallen away from the church and fallen away from God and was really um, struggling. And he just suggested that I come with him to an AA meeting. And so I came with him and continued going, and I was so drawn to it. And I mean, I think one of the reasons that I was so drawn to it was that it reminded me so much of what I that the church was supposed to be, but so often wasn't. And um, I was uh, just kind of blown away by the vulnerability that was displayed, by the humility that was displayed, by the love, kind of non-sentimental love. Um, And so I became interested in AA not only as a place where people recover from addictions, but also as a place where um, a kind of authentic spiritual uh, growth is very often uh, on display. Yeah, because if you're um, if you're a Christian, you you are in recovery because you were once um, you know a sinner destined for uh, hell, and now you're a new creation in Christ, and yet you still have an old nature that you have to deal with from time to time. And I had this idea about eight years ago with my. F- friend uh, George Fraser, who I co-host a recovery show on, I said, wouldn't it be great just to have a small group, kind of a a meeting style recovery group where people can come and just talk with that amount of candor and honesty. Um, And we tried it and it failed miserably. So there you go. That's really interesting. But I mean, can I ask you why you think it failed, Bill? Um, Well, we... Because I think what we were told is it gets awfully hard to establish a new group because most people are pretty already committed to their groups that they're in. And I think because we opened it up to everyone saying, you don't have to have uh, like an addiction that you can speak about. You can, we just want to invite you into this place where you have this accountability and this candor and this honesty and we talk about problems, you know, very openly and transparently. I think it was too scary for people or, you know, they just, they couldn't bring themselves to try it once. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think there are obstacles to this sort of thing. So the article that you mentioned um, is an article where I set up a thought experiment about the, the very thing that you and your, your colleague George tried to do. That is to say, 
you know, I tried to think through, well, what, what would it really look like if we tried to model our small groups, or sometimes they're called discipleship groups, on the AA model? And it's not a, it's not a new idea. I mean, obviously, you and right. you and George tried it. Many people, many people who have experienced AA groups will say things like what I said at the beginning of the show, which is that they see something there that looks authentic, and um, and they wish that they could find that in their churches. But I do think there are some obstacles to just, tra- you know, sort of transposing that into church. For one thing, uh, as I think I mentioned in the article, like people in AA groups are often desperate in a way that um, isn't as evident in the daily life of Christian disciples. I mean, we ought to be desperate, but if we if we are uh, if we're not living as well as we should on a day to day basis, our lives are not necessarily in the toilet in the way that can happen if you're a severe addict to a drug or something like that. So there's a there's a kind of um, desperation in AA circles that prompts the kind of vulnerability that you get there. Um, there's also anonymity, which I think is important. You know, in in a, in a church small group, you you might get a vulnerability hangover, as I call it, because you share all this stuff in a moment of vulnerability. And then the next Sunday, you wish nobody knew it because you just right. want to go back to being your, your right. old self. You know? Right. And there's, some, there's something about the AA, the, the fact that AA is set apart in an intentional way from the other aspects of your life that allows you to get over those kinds of vulnerability hangovers. Um, so those are two big obstacles, I think, to getting that kind of authenticity in church small groups. But Another one that I would mention is that church small groups often take so much effort in the sense that um, there's not a liturgy in place. And one of the things that I came to really love about AA and to see as kind of its genius is that the thing is set up in such a way that you can go to AA any night. And if you have absolutely no personal resources, if you are drained and you don't want to speak a word, you don't have to. You don't have to put on any pious displays. You don't have to pray. You don't have to come up with anything to share. You can simply sit and listen. And that's part of the reason that AA is so sustainable, is that it has a liturgy and it runs itself and it doesn't depend as much as church small groups often do on the emotional energy of their of the participants. Mm-hmm. And Ken, would you say that some of the 12 steps um, in the blue book, I know we were supposed to be maintaining some kind of anonymity whenever you're talking about it, although I've not ever been to a AA meeting, um, but so I, I'm just speculating. But I do know the 12 steps, and I, I would say they would beautifully apply to just about anybody in any walk of life. Absolutely. I mean, strangely, only one of the 12 steps uh, even talks about drinking at all. The 12 steps are really... Uh, they're, they are steps of, um, of moral formation. They, they are descriptions of spiritual practices mm-hmm. that are geared towards the formation of new habits. And it's not a coincidence that they um, have this deeply uh, spiritual and even Christian shape because they came right out of a movement um, called the Oxford Movement that was a so-called moral rearmament movement. It was this Christian movement of trying to make disciples through a certain set of Christian practices, practices can can basically of confession and repentance. 
Um, and AA was built out of that model. And so it's still, ha- it's still very deeply shaped by its Christian roots. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting dynamic um, in a group from what I have been told from other people that it doesn't matter if you're a PhD or you're unemployed, there's, there's a certain level of, of respect and common ground that everybody shares. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I think the reason it's beautiful. I mean, I've been in not only AA groups, but uh, I've been in lots of different 12-step groups. Um, for a time, I was working in, in the addiction ward at Stanford University Hospital. And so I went to opiate recovery groups, um, sex addicts recovery groups. And it's really, especially if you go to these groups in a university setting, it's fascinating because uh, very often there will be PhD types who find their way into these groups. And at the beginning, they're often inclined to, you know, share these uh, lectures that they have on addiction or some aspect of addiction. And uh, it doesn't last very long because people who are in recovery know that it's not, you can't think your way out of it. Uh, you have to actually go through the practices of developing new habits. And so um, it is profoundly equalizing uh, in that sense. It is um, interesting because if you were in a small group at your church and you need to share something vulnerable, aren't you slightly scared that uh, it might turn into a gossip train where we need to really pray for Kent? Ooh, why? I mean, you can you can yeah. disguise it under the under the umbrella of prayer, um, and I always think that people often like showing up to church and they want to present the very best uh, side of them, even if they're just uh, you know suffering underneath. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so true. Um, and why do we do that? I mean, it, you know, I think it has to do with the way that. Christianity and church culture are still wrapped up in in American notions of respectability. You know, I mean, it'd still be hard to get elected to office and to a major office in America if you're not spoken atheist, for instance. And that shows you that our culture, I think, unlike a lot of European culture, is still one where being a churchgoer is a mark of, you know, kind of middle-class respectability. And as long as the church can play that role, um, it's it's going to be a constant temptation for the church to be exactly the opposite of what it's supposed to be. That is to say, for it to be the place where people go to display that they've got it all together. <laughs> and right. So, I, you know, I have this test where when I've moved to a new area and I'm trying to pick a church, the number one question I ask myself is, could a severely addicted person come here and survive? <laughs> and um, usually churches where that's possible are churches that are pretty messy. They're often churches where the pastor has had problems and the church has had to confront those problems openly. Um, and when I go to a church where everything is polished and it looks great, I just think, this couldn't possibly be a place where I could ever be invited into honesty. And so I, I, I can't go here. Mm-hmm. So how can the church learn from the members of the church who have addiction issues? What, 
what the real spiritual community would look like if you're going to go into a small recovery group and just be completely bold and honest and vulnerable and um, what can the church learn? You know, I, I don't know. Um, this, I love this, your answer. This question that you're asking, <laughs> yeah, that, that is has been the, one of the major questions that I've had for the last 10 years um, of thinking about this stuff and also of, of interacting with um, seriously addicted persons because my experience almost without, I mean, without fail of in communities of seriously addicted persons is I don't want to over romanticize them. They have all kinds of problems and people are certainly capable of corruption and dishonesty, but they are characterized by a kind of human honesty that is beautiful and uh, very hard to find in church settings. And so it's been this question that I've had is, is it possible for the church to learn from addicted persons? And I don't have a lot to say about it. I'll just say a couple things. I mean, one is I, I still think that we as a church tend to think that addicted persons in our congregation are problems that we need to solve. Like we need to figure out how to fix them. And there's some truth to that. I mean, we, we, the church should exist to care for those who are suffering and addicted persons certainly are, but it's equally true that those persons that we need them, you know? Um, and, and so I, I think that churches that have ministries to addicts, um, also need to allow the addicted persons in their midst to minister to the church. And that might be as simple as giving testimony, um, uh, that that's that application part is the part that I really struggle with, Bill, and I just don't think I have anything particularly great to say. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that. I, I, once again, you're just completely honest, which I love. All right, Kent, I'm going to take a little break. When I come back, I quoted you last week on the show just because I, I love what you write and I try to follow you as much as I can. And uh, what I said on the program last week uh, kind of lit up the lines, and I had a bunch of uh, people that were kind of upset. So I'm going to, I'm going to say uh, when I come back from the break, what you wrote, and then you can talk about it. How's that? That sounds good. I bet you can hardly wait. I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, hopefully uh, Kent Dunnington will still be on the line. We'll find out in about 90 seconds. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Kent Dunnington, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Biola. And uh, one of the books he's written, Addiction and Virtue, one of my favorites. I think it's it's my go-to book on addiction. And he's written a number of other books. I did try to read Humility, Pride, and Christian Virtue Theory. I did not succeed with that one, Kent. Don't take it personally. It was just a little over my head. Was that, no was, was that book written for acad- academia? Is that for students in particular? Yes. Okay, yeah. Well, I'm not that bright, so I, I couldn't get it. Mostly for grad students. <laughs> okay. I feel way better right now, so thank you. All right, here's what I talked about last week, and it did, uh, it did fire up some, some listeners. And you talk about, uh, in addiction and virtue, that many federal health institutes and professional organizations assume 
addiction is a brain disease purely because the abuse of drug leads to changes in the structure and function of the brain. But you say, however, playing the cello and studying for a London taxi license and memorizing the Old Testament also lead to changes in the structure and function of the brain. Shall we call them diseases too? And then you went on to say that addiction is neither simply a physical disease nor a weakness of the will, that to understand it correctly, we need to resurrect an old spiritual category, habit. We have habits because we are embodied creatures. Most of our behaviors are not under our conscious control. That is a great gift from God. If we had to concentrate on brushing our teeth or tying our shoes every time we did that, life would be impossible. Right. Now, I found that fascinating, and we had a whole number of listeners that they don't like ever if you suggest that alcoholism is is not a disease. Uh huh. I see. I see. So the the objections were over my denial of uh, the category of disease. Uh, okay. So you'd like to know how I respond to that? Yes, please. Well, so I mean, um, I guess the first thing I would say is I understand the uh, attachment to the model because. If you only have two models to work from, the choice model and the disease model, then I think the disease model is to the actual lived experience of addicted persons. And I think the disease model will lead to social programs and social interventions that are more helpful to the addicted person than the choice model. And in fact, we have been operating mainly with those two models. So the debate about addiction is often polarized between those who think that addiction is a disease and those who think that it, think that it's just willful bad behavior. And so it was a great relief to addicted persons who had always been blamed for simply being morally rotten people to discover that there was this completely different model of what had been happening to them. And if those are the two models, then I just think that the disease model is much more accurate as a description of what it's like to be an addicted person. My pushback against it is that although it is much more accurate, uh, there are certain aspects of the experience of addicted persons that simply don't fit within the model. And um, there are simple things like the fact that most addicted persons recover with no medical intervention at all. In fact, most addicted persons, if we're to trust our biggest sociological, they're called catchment surveys, most addicted persons recover without ever even going to a 12-step group. So they recover on their own. And um, that is a, that's certainly strange for something. And most of the things that we think of as diseases require some basic level of medical intervention. Um, and also it's, it's strange that addicted persons themselves in their own description of what led them to say alcoholism or what attached them to alcoholism often talk about, uh, things that go far beyond the biological. They talk about things like loneliness or a sense of belonging or 
finally feeling at home in my own skin. And these aspects of the addicted experience are not easily captured by a notion of sort of pure deterministic biological disease. It looks like the addiction is hooked up in some way with these really meaningful notions that we carry around about belonging and friendship and having a sense of purpose and worth. So uh, that's a long answer to say, because the disease model seemed to me to be better than the choice model, but it seemed to fall short of fully capturing the addicted person's experience. That led me to, to, to try to think about a better model. And I do think that the habit model captures more of the addicted experience than any other model. Mm-hmm. A listener just uh, texted in and said, addiction starts somewhere. Yes, that is true. Uh, <laughs> um, and it starts. It doesn't start at the same place for lots of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it, it, it can have any number of causes, but the strange thing about addiction is that advanced and major addiction typically looks very similar across a wide variety of people, rich and poor, healthy and unhealthy, so on and so forth. So it has to start somewhere. It, it can have many different originating causes, but it seems to be a, a phenomenon that takes on a very distinctive shape. Mm-hmm. But if you think of uh, your family of origin, and let's say mom and dad smoked, and grandma and grandpa smoked, and your aunts and uncles smoked, and all of a sudden you're 16 having your first cigarette, might you say, well, this... Oh, good. It, pardon? Yes, good. So now, so, so one reason that I think people uh, want to push back against the habit model of addiction is they rightly recognize that there are these patterns of family inheritance and that the children of alcoholics are more likely to become alcoholics um, and so on and so forth. And that's certainly true of science. We have all kinds of scientific evidence, things like identical twin studies, for instance, that demonstrates that that's true. But um, I think it's important to realize that genetic predisposition to something is very different than disease. Um, I mean, we now have reason to think that people are genetically predisposed, for instance, to being more or less religious. Hmm. Um, We have, people are genetically predisposed to being excellent musicians or poor musicians. But the fact that we notice that musical talent and musical ability runs in families has never led us to think of a person who is a gifted cellist, to use my earlier example, as someone who's somehow diseased or caught up in the grips of a determined biological uh, uh, phenomenon. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. Mm -hmm. When I started working with people in recovery, Um, I met a guy who grew up on the south side of Chicago and really was struggling with alcoholism in the late 60s, early 70s. And he said, where I grew up, you were a drunk and needed to repent. And that was all I ever heard. And then, you know, you heard the term alcoholic, and then it sort of morphed into a disease. So you do have the option of getting um, insurance to pay for recovery programs, if it can be a disease. That's right. And, and to be clear, I actually think that it's a great good that we have uh, 
insurance programs that can pay for recovery. Oh, and that's I agree. because I think I think of addiction as a combination of a biological and a spiritual phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So my my resistance to the disease model is not meant to spiritualize addiction. It's meant to say that if we only attend to the biological, we're not really getting to the roots of what uh, addiction is. We need both. Right, right, which is which is what uh, I like the way you think, um, and I just so appreciate you coming back on the show, Kent. I mean, seriously, your uh, your book, Addiction and Virtue, is uh, it's my go-to book. Whenever I feel like I need to just brush yeah. up, I go, I go read it. So, it's a great well, book. Thanks. I'm glad you found it helpful. Yeah, yeah I'm not thanks tr- for having me. I'm again, not trying so. to promote it to anybody. You know, I'm not going that far. <laughs> and suggesting that people go out and buy it. I mean, I'm not stupid, so. I'm just saying, for me personally, Kent, the book uh, really worked. So thank you for your work. Uh, and this article that great. we're talking about appears in Christianity Today, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, it's in, I think it was the May 2019 edition, and it's called Small Groups Anonymous. Yeah. And um, you can probably go online and look for it there. Yes, I think it's available online. Yeah. Kent, thank you. Thank you so much for doing the show. I'll look forward to the next time we get a chance to chat. Sounds good, Bill. Take care. Have a great day. All right, that wraps up our show for the day. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you always for supporting Faith Radio. Thank you for the feedback you send during the show. It makes my my workday wonderful because you're amazing. And I hope you have a great night, everybody. And I look forward to our time tomorrow. God bless. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.